0: John Bloch was a new deputy with the Grand Travis County Sheriff's Department in Michigan in 1973 when he found himself himself face to face with a 15-year-old boy pointing a rifle at him. The boy's name was Daniel Rametta. Now let's fast forward to December 1984 and see who this 15-year-old boy became. Hello everyone, I'm Linda Hubert, and you are listening to Beware True Crime. If you could just take a moment and hit your share, your like, and your follow button, I would really appreciate it. This episode hits real close home to me. The rampage came to an end in the community that I grew up in. So, sit back, buckle up, and let's get started. Daniel Rametta and Lisa Dunn met at a party in Travis City, Michigan in December of 1984. They moved in together shortly after their fateful meeting, although at first glance they were an unlikely pair. Both of the Rametta's parents were alcoholics who neglected their five children. As a young teen, he was arrested for crimes that included stealing bicycles, breaking windows, and shoplifting, and yes, pointing a rifle at the deputy. Rametta was sent to a reform school, but quickly ran away. While Lisa Dunn came from a middle-class home with loving parents where she excelled in school and looked on track for college. When she was about 15, she started to rebel, running with the tougher crowd, doing drugs and drinking. At the age of 17, she ran away from home and she ran to Florida. She later returned and was able to graduate from high school. Romero was first adjudicated as a delinquent when he was 13. Although. There was numerous run-ins with the law and authority figures before his first appearance in court. He was a below average intelligence, had a violent temper, and reportedly had only two goals in life. One being to kill a cop and the other one to become a hitman. Whether it was hereditary or environmental, Danny Remetta was just a bad guy. His first adult conviction came for felony breaking and entering, earning him a four-year stretch in a Michigan prison. He was slightly built, a tough character, who managed to earn enough tickets in prison to spend the majority of his first sentence in the hole in Marquette, Michigan, maximum security facility. He was 27 and Lisa was 18. Soon after the party, they met they moved in together. Soon, Remetta was jailed again and accused of breaking car windows during a drunken rampage in which he beat up Lisa Dunn. He told Dunn he wanted to leave because the authorities at Travis City would never give him a break. They were mean to him and he they were just looking for a reason to put him in jail. Dunn, and her friend Mark Walters, 18, of Sutton Bay, Michigan, he was a father, of a, he was a son of a farmer, and an altar boy. The two bailed Rametta out of jail. Acquaintances would describe Walter as an average achiever, who graduated from Suttons Bay High School, had a full-time job, and was well liked. Rametta, however, said he was no altar boy. Soon, Remetta would bunk, jump bail, and head to Florida. The three left northwest Michigan in late January 1985, bound for Florida, on a trip that would involve drugs, alcohol, and murder. Dunn brought a gun with her. She had stolen it from her father. She later testified that she thought she needed the 357 Magnum because two men had raped her previously. When Dunn gave the gun to her boyfriend Remetta to look at it, Remetta kept it and he even named the gun Susie. Remetta quickly put the gun to good use in a convenient store holdup in Combs, Michigan, somewhere along I-75 Dunn and Walters learned the true extent of Remetta's psychopathy. Around the time, Remetta began physically and sexually abusing Dunn. She would later testify about how he would force her to play Russian Roulette with the pistol and he would pick her clothes out and pawn her belongings for money. When Dunn told him that she wanted to return to Michigan, Remetta threatened her life and the lives of her family. The three went, then went to Florida, stayed with relatives of Rametta's mother, and visited Disney World. Dunn sent letters back and postcards telling everybody how much fun she was having. On February 8, 1985, Rametta, armed with the 357 Magnum, robbed a Texaco gas station in Ocala after the clerk handed over $52 in the register, Rometta opened fired shooting Chet Reeder twice in the head and twice in the stomach. Reeder, a 60-year-old man, had died instantly. From Ocala, the trio headed west, surfacing again in Wasacal, Texas, an oil town of less than 2,000 people on Interstate 20, just across the state line of Louisiana. Two days after Chet Reader was killed, Rametta, Walter, and Dunn entered the Wascom gas station where 18-year-old Camilla Carroll was finishing up her Sunday evening shift. When she finished emptying the store cash register, Rametta ordered Camilla, Camilla outside and took her, Dunn, and Walter into the wooded area around 300 yards from the gas station. Rametta then ordered the terrified teenager to walk away from the group. Taking aim with his pistol, Rametta called for her to begin running, which she did. As the girl ran, he opened fire, striking her once in each leg. Camilla crashed to the ground, her legs collapsing. Rametta walked up to her, as she was dying on the ground, and proceeded to empty. The remaining shots into her stomach, leaving Camilla to die in the woods. Remetta, Walters, and Dunn got back in their car and drove away with about $400. The group couldn't have counted on Camilla's determination to live. With five slugs in her body, she managed to crawl a quarter of a mile up the road and stopped a passing car. She was taken to the hospital in Shreveport while her three attackers were headed north to Arkansas and another date with murder. Just south on I-40 in northwest Arkansas is a small town, of Mulberry, which in 1985 was a quiet community with around 1,500 people. Rametta Walter, and Dunn brought chaos and death into that town at about 8 o'clock, February 11th, while 42-year-old Linda Marvin was working at Bob's Grocery Store on U.S. 64. Bob's Grocery Store was near an off-ramp of I-40, and several witnesses saw two men exit a car and was later identified as belonged to Mark Walk The two men entered the store, inside the gunman brought, bought some items, and when Linda opened the register to give him change, he opened fire and shot her ten times with a .22 caliber, wisp- caliber pistol. She was dead at the scene. Rametta was later testified. That he purchased a second firearm and enlisted the help of a wino to help him buy bullets. The killer and his accomplice cleaned out the register and fled the store, leaving behind the change that Linda had placed on the counter. The haul was five hundred dollars. Although they didn't know it at the time, as Rametta and Dunn and Walter drove northwest from the. Crawford County Arkansas fate was directing their course the group had already left a trail of death and mayhem through the South but that was behind them and what was behind them would pale in comparison to what lay ahead in Kansas the day before Valentine's Day in 1985 the killers crossed into the Kansas Apparently on their way to Colorado, where Rametta had relatives. On I-135 north of Wichita, the group picked up James Hunter, a Missouri roofer who was looking for a ride back to his home in Missouri after a trip to Texas. Walter was driving and at this time, Dunn was seated in the middle, in the front and Rametta was seated next to her. With Hunter in the back seat. The group continued north. Somewhere near Grainfield, in central Kansas, Rametta showed Hunter the pair of handguns he was carrying. Testimony later revealed that the 22 had apparently jab, jammed and was inoperable, and remetta gave it to the hitchhiker to repair, which Hunter did. James Hunter told authorities later that he asked to be dropped off at the intersection of I-35 and i-70 which was consistent with his claim that he was attempting to hitchhike back to missouri instead R- remetta refused to let him leave and began talking about the previous hitchhiker that the group had picked up and how much they regretted not taking advantage of the opportunity to kill the, the rider. as it punctuated his statement Remetta fired three rounds from the 22 pistol out the window as Walter drove through the Kansas fields. Shortly after 2, 2 p.m., the group pulled off on I-70 at a grain field exit and drove into a gravel parking lot at the Stuckey's Restaurant, a popular spot for students on their way home from the nearby high school. The restaurant was empty except for the manager, Larry McFarlane. Remetta and at least one other person entered Stuckey's, and when McFarlane handed over the $170 in the till, Remetta shot him dead. The killers fled the scene, but not before someone noticed the red and blue car with Michigan plates leaving the restaurant. That witness, a high school student stopping off for a snack before heading home, discovered McFarland's body and called the police. A Kansas Highway Police officer reported that a blue and red car was heading west on I-70. The Thomas County Under Sheriff Ben Albright, heard the call. A typical rural Kansas community, Thomas County was at the time home of around 5,000 people, most of of whom lived at the county seat, Colby. Colby is a wonderful, small, close-knit town that is a wonderful place to raise children. Colby is low on crime, high on family and community. I know this because this is where I grew up. We generally don't receive a second glance from people who are zooming by on I-70 on their way to Colorado. If they did notice Thomas County at all, it's because at the county line where Thomas and Sherman counties meet, you have to adjust your clocks between Central and Mountain Time. For Daniel Rometta, Lisa Dunn, Mark Walters, and James Hunter, Thomas County would be their place of reckoning. In a little under an hour, the group would do more to change Thomas County than anyone had ever done in the county's history. Their cold-blooded acts of violence would drive home once and for all the notion of I-70 as an unwelcome intrusion into the peaceful way of life in Colby and the other communities in Thomas County. In a matter of minutes, they would change how people there felt about outsiders, and tempt good Samaritans to become vigilantes. Fate had decided the time had come for Danny Rametta to show the people of Thomas County just how horrible a man can be. It was shortly after 4 o'clock, February 13, 1985, 20 minutes earlier, the 27-year-old sheriff Ben Albright, was patrolling Interstate 70 in northwest Kansas when he heard over the police radio that somebody had shot and killed in Greenfield, about 40 miles to the southeast. A red and blue car might have been involved. A Kansas highway patrolman had seen the car matching the description going west on I-70 But the trooper was low on fuel, so he asked Albright to take a look at it. Before long, Albright saw the car. He stopped it at I-70 Levant Interchange, about seven miles west of Colby. Albright turned on his loudspeaker and ordered the four in the car to stay inside and put their hands on the ceiling. The passenger side door opened. A man started to get out. Albright repeated his command the door closed partly then opened again a man got out pointed a handgun at Ben and pulled the trigger the man fired four times as he went to the driver's side door of Albright's vehicle two bullets missed but the other slammed into Albright's right arm and chest Ben leaned over to take cover he tried to put his car in reverse but it was no use lying wounded in the front seat, Ben looked out the driver's side window and saw the man pointed gun at him. I just closed my eyes, Ben said, and waited for another shot. I really expected to die that day. Instead, Rametta, thinking that he shot the shots had done the job, got back in his car and sped off. Before he lost consciousness, Ben watched the car leave I-70 for US-24. He radioed for help and told the dispatcher what had happened. Ben didn't know everything that had occurred, and in his semi-conscious state, the officer would later testify that he was shot by Hunter, possibly saw Hunter raise a 22 pistol and fire, except that by all accounts, Hunter was trying to shoot Rametta, believing that he had only one chance to escape. Hunter tried to shoot Rametta as he returned to the vehicle. Instead the hitchhiker managed to shoot Dunn in the leg. Remetta knew that he had to ditch the car and find new transportation. About 10 minutes after he shot Ben he directed Walters to drive to a grain elevator nearby. After departing from the I-70 Levant interchange, Walter drove until the group arrived at Bartler, Bartlett Elevator in Levant, Kansas. At the elevator were three or eight individuals: Maurice Christie, the elevator manager; Fred Sager, the assistant manager; Dennis Tubbs; Raymond Herma, Hermann, Hermann; Ramza, sorry; Rick Schroeder. Glenn Moore, and two others. Schroeder and Moore were taken hostage and forced into a pickup truck. While phoning the police, Christie was shot by Remetta. Remetta, Walter, Hunter, and Dunn, and the two hostages proceeded north on Highway 24 near Colby, Kansas, where they stopped and Remetta shot both Schroeder and Moore with the 357, and leaving their bodies in the road. Later, near a near Near a farmhouse in Rollins County, police forced the fleeing pickup off the road. After a gun battle during which Walters was killed and Dunn and Remetta were w- wounded, Remetta, Hunter, and Dunn were arrested. All three were charged with two counts of felony mor- murder from Schroeder and Moore, two counts of aggravated kidnapping for sh- from sh- Schroeder and Moore one count of aggravated battery on the law enforcement Ben Albright, one count of aggravated battery on Christie, and one count of aggravated robbery. Rametta pled guilty to all counts Hunter and Dunn were tried by a jury. During the trial, witness gave conflicting testimony regarding Dunn's participation in the events at the elevator. State witnesses Maurice Christie testified he saw a car parked between the scale house and the grain bins and that Dunn was sitting in the driver's seat. Dennis Tubbs testified that the driver of the pickup had shoulder-length light or dark blonde hair and... He heard a female voice saying, Get in. Raymond Haramza described the driver of the pickup as having long, shoulder-length, dishwasher-blonde hair. Wesley Moore described the driver of the pickup as having shoulder-length, dishwasher-blonde hair. Dunn's hair, which had been dyed while in Wichita, was shoulder-length and blonde. Mark Walters' hair was length and brown. Judy McKee, who was driving along the Highway 24, observed a pickup and testified that the driver was Mark Walters and the person sitting next to the driver was done. She was smiling and appearing to be having a good time. Kenneth Dibel, a reserve police officer, testified that the driver of the pickup had dark hair. Defense witnesses Robert Blacha, special agent for the Kansas Bureau Investigation, who conduct, conducted the initial interviews of witnesses in the case, testified that at the time neither Haramza, Tubbs, or Sager indicated Dunn was driving the pickup. When asked why Dunn remained with him from January. 27th through February 13, Rametta testified she didn't have a choice. He said he tricked Dunn into taking her father's gun, which he later used to threaten her. He admitted making threats against the members of Dunn's family. He said that if Dunn had tried to leave him during the trip, he would have kept those threats. Regarding the events of February 13th, Rametta testified Walter was driving the car while he occupied the passenger seat with Dunn sitting between them. At the Bartlett elevator, Rametta told Walter to put Dunn in the pickup. Walter then helped Dunn into the seat behind the driver's seat and drove the pickup away from the elevator. Hunter coordinate. Co- corroborated that he accidentally shot Dunn at the, L- at the Levant intersection and that Dunn sat between Walter and Remetta until they reached the Bartlett elevator. At the elevator, Hunt- Hunter put Dunn behind the driver's seat of the pickup. Later, when Remetta told Schroeder and Moore to get in the pickup, Hunter suggested to Remetta why don't you let the girl out here? Just leave her here and we'll take off in this truck. When Rametta asked Dunn if she wanted to go, she answered, No. I love you. I want to go with you. Dunn testified that she was held, in, held into the, herded into the pickup on the driver's side and placed behind the jump seat. She denied that Rametta ever asked her if she wanted to be let out of the pickup. Dunn testified that her main concern from that time they reached the elevator until the time she was arrested was the fact that she had been shot. She denied ever driving the car or the pickup. She denied any involvement in the shootings and maintained that she was unaware that Christian Schroett Christy, Schroeder, and more had been shot. Dunn stated that she was afraid of Rametta even after they were apprehended, but admitted she has written him love letters while he was in jail. What Dunn fails to grasp is that before any balancing test, test is employed, she must clearly show that her mental capacity is, signif- is a significant issue for a defend- to of the charges. This Dunn failed to do. Having no desire to raise insanity as a defense, Dunn argued that because she was influenced by threats, was under duress, and was under the emotional and mental restraints of Remetta, she had no specific intent to commit the crimes, but was compelled by Remetta to be present when the crimes were committed. She claimed that that to show that her acts were compelled by Rametta, the services of expert witness were necessary to investigate the battered wife syndrome and the hostage and captivity syndrome. Dunn maintained that evidence of either or both syndromes would bolster her claim that she was acting under compulsion and therefore not criminally responsible. Here, however, Dunn's attempt to intertwine the battered wife syndrome and the statutory defense of compulsion either to justify crimes committed against innocent third parties or to show that she was compelled to be at the crime scenes because of earlier threats by Rametta against her and her family. The defense of compulsion was successfully raised on appeal by Dunn's co-defendant Hunter, resulting in the reversal of his confession. Now, compulsion. It's a person is not guilty of a crime other than murder or voluntary manslaughter by reason of con- conduct which he performs under the compulsion or the threat or the immediate inflict of death or great bodily harm. If he re- reasonably believes that death or great bodily harm will be inflicted upon him or his spouse, parent, child, brother, or sister, if he does not perform this conduct. The defense provides by this section, it is to not available to one who is willingly places himself in the situation which it is probable that he will be subject to compulsion or threat. In Hunter, we held that the statutory probate, probation on the use of the compulsion defense is limited to crimes of in, intentional killing. Thus, where one is compelled to commit a felony and the death occurs, compulsion is a defense to the underlying felony. Although the compulsion defense is available in cases of felony murder it is a it is still a limited defense in order to constitute the defense of compulsion the coercion and the duress must be present imminent and impending in which a nature As to induce a well-grounded apprehension of death or serious bodily injury in the act is not done. The doctrine of coercion or duress cannot be invoked as an excuse by one who had a reasonable opportunity to avoid doing the act without undue exposure to death or seriously bodily harm. In addition, the compulsion must be continuous, and there must be no reasonable opportunity to escape the compulsion without committing the crime. It is important to compare Hunt's circumstances with Dunn's. Hunter was picked up as a hitchhiker along the interstate. Shortly after he entered the car, Remetta took out a 357, fired it out the window, and began to talk about the hitchhiker that they had already killed. When Hunter asked to be let out of the car, Remetta refused. Remetta led, later fired the gun in the direction of Hunter and and told Hunter he had killed a man for $40, as well as 12 other people. Remetta asked Hunter if Hunter thought a 357 could kill him. Between the time hunter was picked up and the time that he was apprehended by the police at the farmhouse, Rametta had possession of the three fifty seven magnum at all times. Rametta testified that he would have shot hunter if hunter would not have followed the orders. The total time Hunter spent with Rametta, from the point where he was picked up by Rametta to the time he was apprehended by the police, were approximately two hours. Thus, Hunter could claim that he had no reasonable opportunity to escape, and could argue that, that the jury should have been allowed to determine if he was compelled to commit the crimes. Now the facts do not support Dunn's claim that she was a captive. She was not kidnapped. She went with Rametta voluntarily after stealing a gun for him. She was not guarded around the clock. In fact, there were many times when she was alone or awake when Rametta was asleep. She was not isolated, but stayed with friends in Florida, went to Disney World, and stayed in a number of motels and hotels during the crime spree. She was not subject to brainwashing. The fact that Rometta chose her clothes, called her wife, and sold some of her jewelry certainly does not approach the total breakdown of personality which occurs when a captor's attempt to brainwash their captive. It, It is apparent that Dunn's romantic attachment to. Rametta was voluntary. If she was a victim, she was a victim of her poor judgment. The Kansas jury, however, did not buy Rametta's story. Dunn's claim that she was a hostage, or Hunter's plea that he happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. After 13 hours of deliberation, they returned a guilty verdict against the pair for the murders of Schroeder and Moore. When the jury announced its verdict, Dunn had dropped to the table and she began to sob. Hunter, who had spent a grand total of two hours in Daniel Rametta's company, from the time he was picked up as a hitchhiker until the time he was arrestly, arrested, simply shook his head. Lisa Dunn and James Hunter were both worth each sentenced to two life terms for the felony murder conviction two life terms for aggravated kidnapping conviction, 15 years to life for aggravated battery of a law enforcement officer, 15 years to life for aggravated robbery, and 5 to 20 years for aggravated battery, and quickly disappeared into the correctional system. There was a brief scuffle between the Kansas and Arkansas over Dunn's extradition, but Kansas Governor adamantly opposed the death penalty and wouldn't send her to face a capital murder charge. But most of the tension for the next several years was focused on the appeals she and Hunter launched shortly after their conviction. Hunter argued that the trial court erred when it refused to give the jury specific instructions about how compulsion could mitigate a person's guilt. Most laws that provide for a defense of compulsion stem from the age-old legal belief that a person, when faced with the choice between suffering death and serious bodily harm and committing some lesser charge, should not be punished for committing the lesser offense. In July 1987, the Kansas Supreme Court handed down its decision on Hunter's appeal, overturning his conviction and ordering a new trial, at which time he would be allowed to offer the compulsion defense. The court reasoned that if compulsion is available as a defense, to underlying felony, it must also be available as a defense to the murder committed by someone else that was accompanied the felony. Kansas prosecutors quickly moved to retry Hunter, but after the defense presents the evidence of Rametta's abuse and the judge delivered the required instructions about compulsion, the jury returned a not guilty verdict. Hunter had little time to enjoy this newfound freedom, however. Four days after his acquittal, he suffered a fatal heart attack and died. Lisa Dunn's appeal to Kansas' judicial system was less successful, and her convictions withstood all her challenges at the state level to the appellate judges to Kansas, the fact that Dunn had ample opportunity during her spree to leave Rametta, and that his threat were not continuous indicated that she was not, like Hunter, compelled to commit the murder. The court held Dunn's own words against her. She quote, She quoted, He still did threaten me, but he treated me nice at times, but he'd always make sure that threat was known to me that he'd be nice you know he could be nice to me but if I was but I was misbehaving he would get mean. but if I didn't behave you know he wasn't going to he wasn't going to be uh because you know like if I'd smart mouth him real bad or something I'd get a slap whatever he felt like at the time it depends on his mood. He was real moody, unquote. The High Court rejected Dunn's argument that had been that she had been able to bring an expert to talk about the hostage syndrome. The outcome of the trial might have been different, successfully presenting a hostage syndrome syndrome defense requires that the defendant demonstrates a necessary element including prolonged captivity, isolation, and the lack of privacy from the captive, and most importantly, a breakdown of the captive's personality and establish of a new psyche in place. In the strongly worded rejection of Dunn's argument, the court held that the fact do not support Dunn's claims that she was a captive. She was not kidnapped. Her and Walters bailed him out of jail. She went with Remetta voluntarily after stealing her father's gun. She was not guarded round the clock. In fact, there were many times when she was alone or awake with Remetta, and Remetta was asleep. She was not isolated, but stayed with friends in Florida, even went to Disney World and stayed in a number of motels and hotels during the crime spree. She was not subject to brainwashing. It is apparent that Dunn's romantic attachment to Remetta was voluntary. If she was a victim, she was a victim of her own poor judgment. But, in a stunning turn of events in 1991, a federal district court judge overturned Dunn's conviction and ordered a new trial. Because she was charged with aiding and abetting Daniel Rometta, her metal state was a key component in her defense. The court ruled the trial court erred by not providing Dunn with an expert witness. The state of Kansas quickly appealed the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld the lower federal court ruling. The Tenth Circuit Ruling on compulsion and the battered woman syndrome significantly reshaped how courts looked at battered women who commit crimes. The Dunn decision extended the use of battered woman syndrome beyond, beyond situations in which a defendant uses testimony about the syndrome to justify her actions and relieve her culpability. Now, a defendant may use testimony on a battered woman syndrome to provi- to prove her innocent when charge with specific intended crimes. In 1992, Lisa Dunn went to trial a second time. Like James Hunter, this time Dunn was able to present a defense of compulsion complete with expert testimony about why a better battered woman would had with ample opportunity to flee a hostile environment, chooses to stay with her batter. Like Hunter, this time, Lisa Dunn was ac- acquitted of all charges. While quite disappointed and somehow, somewhat surprised, the Kansas Assistant Attorney General, who prosecuted Dunn the second time, I never felt the defendant in this case was a victim. Dunn remained behind bars facing an Arkansas Capitol murder charge and Linda Marvin's killing. In December 1993, she pleaded guilty to one count of hindering apprehension and prosec- or prosecution of, and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Receiving qu- credit for time served, she st- that she served in Kansas. By plea agreement, the rest of the sentence was suspended. She returned home to Travis City and took a job at a center for abused women. Dunn later got a job at a psychologist's office, still emotionally troubled with alcohol and gambling problems. These problems followed her. In 1996, she stole more than $8,000 from her employer, in an eerie repeat of earlier events, Dunn and her boyfriend fled to Florida, this time willingly returning to face prosecution, announcing that they had married and she was pregnant. In 1998, she pled guilty to felony embezzlement, noting that she was undergoing treatment for her addiction and she paid back the money in full. The judge sentenced her to one year in jail and placed her on probation for five years. The state of Arkansas did not ask for her return. During the time Lisa Dunn and James Hunter were appe- appealing their convictions, Daniel Remetta was busy with trials of his own. In 1986, he was extradited from Kansas to Florida and tried for Chet Reader's murder. He didn't put, put up much of a fight at the time and was quickly convicted and sentenced to die in Old Sparky florida's bulky electric chair the next year florida sent him to arkansas where he was tried and convicted of murder there again receiving the death penalty early on in his incarceration remetta made it clear that he didn't want to grow old in prison in one letter he wrote if i don't try for the death penalty i'll die in some prison this is why i'm trying to get extradited In another letter, he stated, I'm going to try for the death penalty if I can. Regardless of the inmates' wishes, the capital punishment process moves slowly. Even so, volunteers who opt to not pursue every possible avenue of appeal do not go from trial to punishment quickly, and most states with death penalty statutes have certain mandatory appellate reviews built into the system. More often than not, brandish murderers like Daniel Rametta, who actively seek execution, begin to get cold feet as the appellate deadlines pass and the long walk to the death chamber grows nearer. Although the Federal Death Penalty Act has somewhat streamlined the appeals process and limited the number of times a case can be reviewed there is a little there is little to stop the condemned conviction with second thought from filing the eleventh hour appeal such was the case with daniel rametta after florida governor set a march 31 1998 execution date rametta probably had many reasons to fight his execution he had met and married a sympathetic woman rediscovered his Native American roots, and he was a poet, writing about the cruelty of imprisonment and the unfairness of the death penalty. The fact that the last man executed in Florida's electric chair the year before had flames shooting out of his head probably motivated him as well. On March 31st, As March 31st grew closer, Rametta and his attorneys pulled out all the stops. In a death row interview, he told the reporters he only pleaded guilty to the killings to save Dunn from execution. I'm a thief, and that's all I was. I'm not a killer. Because the Florida prosecutors used his plea in Kansas and and Arkansas as a basis to seek the death penalty, There, he tried to recant his guilty pleas, to no avail. In court papers, he claimed it was all Dunn's doing. Dunn dominated him and directed Mr. Remetta during the crime spree. On March 30, 1998, 40-year-old Daniel Remetta downed his last meal, which consists of two 44-ounce Ices. He met with his family, his new wife attorneys, friends, and his spiritual advisor and waited the 7 a.m. execution. He showed no emotion as officials strapped him into the chair and placed the headgear and the electrodes on top of his head. Remetta declined to make a final statement and then the hood was pulled down over his face. In an adjacent room, a black hooded executioner received the go-ahead from the prison warden and pulled the switch that sent thousands of volts coursing through his body. His muscles tightened, straining against the straps that held him down. It took just over 30 seconds, and it was over. He was declared dead at 7:12. Outside the prison, Daniel Rometta's spiritual advisor shared his final statements with the crowd. Quote, For past action and events, there is generally general, genuine remorse and even greater sorrow that none of this can be undone, the man said. Reading from a statement, Rometta composed two hours before his execution. I would give a thousand lifetimes to undo the past deeds. If this death brings comfort to the friends and family of those harmed and, he, and it initiates real healing process, then justice has truly been served. Although the statement doesn't re- reflect it, Rametta reportedly admitted to almost all the killings that occurred during the spree. He was unable to speak about the one that occurred during a drug and alcohol-induced blackout. In Kansas, not far from where the truck's rush on I-70, a reaction from Police Chief Randy Jones. I could care less what Daniel Rometta says 13 years later. What lasts with me is how he was the day he took the lives in Kansas. Rick Schroeder's father said it takes so long to get something over with. It doesn't sound like he felt sorry for anyone it sounds like he didn't have any remorse but when you kill someone it's not a happy day and as for me I can't speak for everyone in Colby but I am very thankful for the men who protected our little town here in Northwest Kansas thank you you are truly heroes thank you so much for listening to beware true crime if you could do me a huge favor and hit the share, the like, and the follow buttons. I would really appreciate it. Again, I am Linda Hubert, and until next time, beware.